Hello and welcome to the Energy Transition Talk, the podcast that explores the challenges and opportunities of transitioning to a lower carbon future. I'm Paulina. I'm Justine. And I'm Jim. And we are your hosts for the Energy Transition Talk. In this podcast, we seek to break down some of the most complex and important issues regarding the energy transition and how it impacts us. In each episode, we'll tell you a story by bringing you various perspectives about the energy transition so that you can make the best and most informed decisions for you and your communities. In this episode, we will explore the connections between energy, water, and climate systems as it relates to energy poverty and access to critical energy services. Today, we are delighted to speak with Dr. Kelly Sanders, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at USC, and three of her PhD students, Step, McKenna, and Andrew, who have been working on research projects related to renewable energy adoption and access to cooling in dealing with extreme heat. Let's dive into this further with Dr. Kelly Twomey Sanders. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sanders, for joining us today. Dr. Sanders um, is an associate professor of civil and environmental engineering at USC, where she teaches classes on energy and the environment. Her research aims to reduce the environment impacts of operating energy and water, analyze tensions between climate change and adaptation and mitigation strategies, and anticipate the effects of climate change on energy systems. She has authored over two dozen publications and is a frequent speaker on topics at the intersections of engineering, science, and policy. Dr. Sanders has been recognized for her contributions to the energy field in the Forbes 30 Under 30, Today's Disruptions and Tomorrow's Brightest Stars, as well as the MIT Technology Review's 35 Innovators Under 35. Her research and commentary has been featured in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, The Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, Wired Magazine, Forbes, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and The Scientific American. Dr. Sanders received her bachelor's in bioengineering from Pennsylvania State University, as well as a master's in mechanical engineering and a PhD in environmental engineering from the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you, Dr. Sanders, for joining us today on Energy Transition Talk. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so maybe just to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and interest in the connections between energy, water, and the climate systems? Maybe what inspired you to focus on your research topic and what makes you passionate about the energy transition? Yeah, so if you listen to my background, um, I had kind of a circuitous path to get here to teaching at USC and energy systems. Um, back when I was 18, I was really interested in helping people. And so as a freshman, I went into a bioengineering program with the idea that I would help people who had gotten hurt um, get rehabilitated through bioengineering technologies. And then I graduated with that degree and I kind of got swept away in this conversation about climate. So I was thinking about graduate school and I was really thinking about how to make a big impact. And I was already an engineer and I got really, really interested in energy systems. They're very multidisciplinary. Um, you think about physics, you think about biology, you think about chemistry. Um, and so I enrolled in a PhD program at the University of Texas, and I worked with my advisor, whose name is Dr. Michael Weber, um, and he really takes a holistic look at this energy problem. So he thinks about the technologies within the context of economic constraints and policy constraints. Um, and so that's kind of really permeated throughout my career. I'm really interested in energy systems at a whole and how they operate within the world. And so here at USC, I kind of, I started out extending the research that I was doing as a doctoral student. I was looking at the relationship between energy and water systems because our energy systems require a lot of water to function. So we use a lot of water to produce oil and gas, to produce electricity. Um, and more, and lately I've been taking kind of a bigger picture approach. How do our energy systems operate within the function or within the context of a changing climate more generally? So climate is really impacting our energy systems because we're using more air conditioning, for example. So my um, group looks in, looks into how um, warming is changing the way that we behave with our energy system. And then we're also looking at the other side of the coin, thinking about 
how does the grid itself decarbonize and what are some of the challenges associated with that? Um, so we look at a lot, um, but really I'm interested in how these systems interact with each other. How does energy and climate talk to each other? And then also how do those systems impact the environment um, more generally? Yeah, that's great. And we're really grateful to have your broader, you know, interdisciplinary perspective here. The topic for today is energy poverty. Maybe just to set the stage, could you define what energy poverty is and um, what is the scope of it? Um, how serious of an issue is it? Does it impact only certain regions or a lot of other, a lot of geographic areas? Like what is the scope of the issue? Yeah, so energy poverty in its most simplistic sense is the inability for someone to pay for enough energy to meet their basic needs. So said more simply, you know, at what point does someone's finances restrict them from getting enough energy to meet their well-being, their quality of life requirements? And so, you know, nearly 800 million people globally don't have access to electricity. And that's the statistic we often think about when we think about energy poverty or energy in access. Um, but the issue, the challenge is much, much broader than that. So here in the United States, which is, you know, one of the richest countries in the world, a third of the population is energy insecure, meaning that they at some point have lacked the resources to purchase enough energy for cooling or heating or you know, meeting their basic needs um, to be comfortable, which has negatively impacted their well-being. Um, we've seen this Ukraine-Russia war you know, impact Europe and, and how Europeans um, have to pay much higher energy bills now, which has restricted the amount of energy they might need for cooling their um, their homes in summer and also um, heating their homes in winter. So this isn't a problem that is isolated to poorer countries. This is really an issue that permeates throughout the world and it's getting worse with time. Um, so, you know, the world right now is experiencing unprecedented heat. Much of the world doesn't have access to AC. Um, so climate change is really, really exacerbating some of these issues that already existed um, before, you know, it got really, really bad. Yeah, and I think that's a good point to make that, like, it doesn't just affect developed countries, it, um, not just developing countries, but it affects all countries around the world. Um, and kind of, we've heard the term just transition a lot, the idea that, you know, we need to address climate change more broadly. It's not just about accelerating renewables and phasing out coal. Uh, so I'm wondering what a just transition looks like and why is it so important that we put people in communities at the center of the energy transition? So a lot of times we think about the climate crisis through the lens of decarbonization. So we think about just how do we reduce um, carbon? The idea of the just transition is how do we put people at the center of that? Um, question. And just to give, you know, a very, very simple example, a policy lever that we could pull to make this transition go really, really fast is we could make gas $15 a gallon. But that would absolutely devastate the middle and lower classes here. Um, people wouldn't be able to get to work. They wouldn't be able to, um, you know, maintain their livelihood. And so while that might be good for environmental or climate sustainability, it does really bad in the realms of economic sustainability or social sustainability. So thinking through a just transition, we really have to think about how we move towards decarbonized solutions and also adaptation strategies. Adaptation is a huge part of this conversation that protect people, but also don't punish people throughout throughout. Um, and, and that's a hard optimization. It's hard to think through the three prongs of environmental, social, and economic um, sustainability, but we absolutely have to for this to be successful. And I think that it's very important what you're saying about adaptation and like these different spheres and thinking of 
kind of this as the background, in your opinion, what are the biggest challenges other global economies will face moving towards renewable energy uh, and thinking of uh, developing nations? Yeah, so, you know, this has always been, this was always going to be a really, really big challenge, you know, getting from a system which right now sits at 80% fossil fuels globally um, to a system that's almost or will become net zero is, is the ultimate goal. That's always been really hard and the last few years have made it a lot harder. So with COVID and a number, number of other, you know, um, global challenges that the world has been facing, um, a lot of countries are in debt crises. And that basically means that financing these new technologies has gotten much, much more expensive. And people and governments are charged with meeting their own basic needs. You know, this whole climate thing is of a lesser priority when you don't know how you're going to access your, new, your next meal or your next glass of drinking water or taking care of your newborn infant. Um, so COVID has exacerbated a lot of these challenges. We really need to think about how we're going to get the money to do this, and that's going to require innovations and in financing. Um, but we also have to think about the social and the societal transition associated with this, um, because there's a lot of mistrust of governments, distrust of governments. Um, there's a lot of, you know, politically, political instability around the world that restricts some of these challenges. There's incumbent actors, you know, so there's the fossil fuel industries themselves, um, which might wield a lot of power in some of these nations. And there's also people that depend on those jobs currently. So if you just yank those jobs away, you know, people lose access to their livelihood. Um, so there's really a plethora of challenges that again, thinking through this idea of the just transition, how do you implement these solutions and then take the people along with you? Yeah, that's a pretty um, daunting set of challenges there and kind of moving onto solutions. Um, I guess, can you walk us through some of the options? Like what are the potential solutions or ways for developing countries to adopt clean energy while continuing to grow their economies and reach sustainable development goals? And maybe if there are any trade-offs with each approach? Yeah, so again, this is a really, really complex issue. Um, but just, you know, thinking through the most obvious strategy is just access to money, right? Like this transition is gonna cost a lot for the United States. It's gonna cost a lot for Europe. It's gonna cost a lot for these developing nations. And one of the benefits that the Western world has that you know the United States and Europe has, for example, is that renewable energy in a lot of these markets is actually the cheapest option. So in a lot of places around the United States, for example, solar and or wind is actually cheaper than building a new natural gas facility or building a new coal facility. There's some challenges with those technologies and there might be opposition to those technologies, but from a cost perspective, they actually are really cheap. That is not the case in a lot of these developing countries. So like I mentioned before, a lot of these countries are in debt crisis. And that means that it's really hard for them to access financing. It's a lot of, it's very difficult for them to get the capital to pay for these um, investments. And it's also really, really difficult to attract investors because people don't trust that the money that they invest is ultimately gonna come back to them. So we kind of need a new business model for thinking about how we get these countries to be able to transition from a cost perspective, you know, um, everyone's heard about this, you know, development fund, the $100 billion that was supposed to go to the developing world. And, you know, the rich world really hasn't come through on that commitment. But even that $100 billion that was promised to these countries is just, you know, the tip of the iceberg in terms of the amount of financing that's going to be needed. So we really have to think about what are, what are sustainable financing models um, that will facilitate this transition, but that will also not in-depth these 
um, countries forever so that they're, you know, forever um, trying to pay back this debt. Um, so making the business model a little bit more sustainable. We also need to think about the communities themselves. So in a lot of places, there's, like I said before, there's this distrust of government and there's a distrust of foreign actors kind of coming in and implementing new technologies and asking people, you know, get rid of your biomass cook stoves and, and choose something else, you know, leave your job at the coal fired power plant um, because we're gonna, you know, do something else here that's scary for a lot of communities and, and for a lot of reasons that mistrust, that distrust is really warranted. So unfortunately, you know, the solutions aren't necessarily scalable here. You have to look at these solutions in the context of the local community. You know, who are the trusted representatives? Is it re religious figure? Is it um, a tribal elder? Is it a labor union? Is it the government? Um, for different countries, for different regions, for different tribes, that answer is going to be different. And you really have to get that stakeholder engagement for to get these communities to kind of adopt and welcome these new technologies. And I think part of that is the economic development. So there's been a lot of failed examples where rich countries have gone into, let's just call it sub-Saharan Africa. They've installed water systems or sanitation systems or solar systems. Um, they built it and they left and the thing breaks. And there was no you know, um, there was no attempt to work within the cultural confines of the community. And so this infrastructure is now just not being used, it's broken. So we really have to think about, you know, what are the retraining opportunities? How do we make these new industries part of the local economy and an asset to the local economy? So how do we use this transition to actually build up industries within these communities? Um, and make them economically independent so that they benefit the community members that use them. A lot of times we think through, you know, electrification through the lens of the house, you know, can people get late for reading, which is good for education? Can people get, um, you know, more sustainable energy for cooking and cooling and heating? And while that's a really good focus, I think we need to focus a lot also on the industries within these communities. Because if you build a sustainable industry that requires electrification, you know, requires the use of the solar plant or the wind plant, you're not only bringing electrification to that community that surrounds this new economic opportunity for these people, um, but all of those people benefit from this new source of revenue um, for this location. So I think just the theme here is we really need to think um, more holistically about these solutions. Don't just focus, don't put your box around the solar panels, put your box around the community. Like how do you make this viable from an economic perspective so that it's just not a cost, but it's actually brings in revenue over time and serves um, the people that require it. Yeah, and just to kind of go back on the, the financing point, so to provide some context, I believe it was 2015 the, during the Paris Agreement where wealthy countries pledged that $100 billion a year to help countries, um, developing countries reduce their emissions and adapt to the effects of climate change. And so I'm wondering if you have thoughts on um, for the amount of money that is getting transferred, um, is there a way that they can this money can be used to help economic development at the local level? Yeah, so, you know, some analysis on that number suggests that a very small fraction of that number has actually been disseminated to these communities. And, you know, I think an organization within the United Nations says that we need something on the order of $6 trillion by 2030 to even get a fraction of the commitments of the developing countries toward that decarbonization goal. Um, so, I think the money is very important. And I think there's a moral case here. You know, the United States and Europe um, and the rich world at large has 
benefited from the use of fossil fuels over the last few hundred years, which has gotten us to the place that we're in. Um, these developing countries aren't a very large fraction of the carbon budget, and they're also getting disproportionately impacted by the consequences of climate change. They are also the regions that are growing most rapidly. So not only do you have a situation in which we need to meet the basic needs of these countries, but we also need to meet their growth. And so kind of circling back to your question about how this money um, gets disseminated, it's hard because it's, it's not enough money to meet the needs. So how do you dole it out? Who gets it? How do you prioritize where the money goes? How do you make it benefit and come back to the communities as we just discussed? Unfortunately, I don't have the answer, but we need to think harder about the challenge. You know, we really need to think about um, how we make the money go farther. A lot of times, you know, here in the United States, just to give you an example, a lot of times we, we direct our climate adaptation money, you know, money that would benefit communities to protect them from um, the consequences of climate change. We spend that money to protect value, right? So we try to save the most expensive homes or the most expensive infrastructure. Um, and that's not necessarily maximizing the benefits to the communities, you know? So it's, it's not a one-dimensional problem here. It's a multifaceted problem. So we really have to think um, holistically about how, how that money gets out to address some of these challenges. And maybe like different ways, as you were saying, is having examples of uh, success stories that that can be maybe pathways into moving forward. So do you can you think of any of these accessories of developing countries or specific regions that have made significant progress in, re in renewable energy adoption or maybe examples within California that we can learn from? Sure. So, you know, one of the one of the examples that is most um, common to, to state here is Costa Rica. You know, Costa Rica is you know, not a very, very rich country and it has managed to um, get to an electricity system where much of the time it's operating with almost 100% renewable electricity. And that's a really incredible achievement, you know? And one of the really neat things about that achievement is they've actually leveraged a tourism industry based on that success story. So, you know, there's college students across the country or in across the world that go to Costa Rica to learn about their electricity system and do ecotourism and, you know, focus on the ecosystems and learn about environmental sustainability. Um, so that has been a really huge success story for Costa Rica about how they've made some investments, how they've reached this level of success, and then how they're actually leveraging those investments to bring more back to the local economy. Now, as much as that's a success story, Costa Rica is also in a really unique situation. They have enormous amounts of hydropower for the amount of electricity that their population requires. And so they've been able to build some wind and build some solar, but at the heart of that system is this incredible hydropower resource, which makes it a little bit easier to balance some of those renewables. And that's not to detract from the, um, the success story, but it's also to underscore each country is going to have its own unique challenges based on its economic situation, but also just its renewable resources. You know, some countries are cloudy, some countries aren't coastal, so they might not have um, as much wind opportunities as other countries. So there certainly have been um, success stories in terms of, you know, building out these renewable energy systems. Um, but I, 
it's hard sometimes to say success based on this or failure based on this because you know you have to look at the complexities of this um, of of the challenges of decarbonization and the local economy and resources, et cetera. California is a really um, interesting situation because we're kind of going first here in the United States and we're really serving as a model um, for the for US states, but also the rest of the world more broadly. You know, we're building out an electricity system here that, you know, for a very, very small fraction of time last year had nearly 100% renewable electricity. So we met, you know, over 95% of our system was being served by renewables um, for a very small portion of the day. And that's a challenging system to manage right now. And quite honestly, we don't know how to manage a system that gets very, very high fractions of variable renewable energies like wind and like solar. Um, there have been countries that have done it. So for example, there's Denmark and it's wind power. Um, it has very, very high fractions of wind at some hours of the day. But when that wind exceeds what the local communities need, they can actually export it to other countries. So that's kind of how they've had their success story. Obviously, that's not something that can be replicated everywhere because you can't export electricity everywhere all at the same time. Um, so California is trying to figure that out now. You know, how do you import power? How do you export power? How do you build in storage? So we've made huge investments in energy storage over the last few years. We're thinking about something called demand response. So how do you get people like you and me to use the dishwasher or use the washing machine when solar resources are really, really strong. And then to reduce those loads, you know, at 6, 7, 8 p.m., depending on the time of year when those solar resources diminish um, and the system is mostly natural gas. So we have to start thinking not only about the supply side of the equation, which we're used to thinking about batteries, renewables, um, and we're starting to think more about the demand side of the equation. How do we time our electricity usage? How, you know, increasingly, how do we charge our cars when there's a lot of renewable energy um, available? That's a conversation that's just now starting, but we really have to get that integrated into our psyche. Um, that again, taking California as an example, using electricity in the middle of the day is almost carbon free, especially in the spring when you have a lot of hydro, a lot of wind and a lot of solar. But at 6 p.m., it's almost all natural gas and fossil fuels. So, you know, depending on when you choose to consume your electricity, you know, you have different carbon consequences and we've really never had a system like that. So California is trying to figure it out and we're gonna have some bumps along the way, you know? I'm trying to incorporate more and more variable renewable energy. Um, but I know that you're talking to some of my students later in the show. Um, so they'll, you know, talk about some of the research that we've been doing in that area. We'd love to kind of conclude about things, um, given all the challenges that we face in dealing with energy poverty and energy transition, um, what inspires or motivates you about the future of energy? Um, both you know, dealing with fighting climate change, but all at the same time, increasing access to critical energy services. Yeah, so you know, I think it's easy to get stuck in you know the despair of the challenge. You know, there's a lot of you know doomsday scenarios associated with thinking about climate change, but I think we have a huge opportunity here. You know, a lot of times we just think about this as an extra cost that we're going to incur. Um, to get the same services that we were already getting from these other systems. And the reality of the situation is we could really use this as an opportunity to design a much better world. So, you know, two, over 2 billion people, 2.5 billion people don't have access to sanitation. Nearly a billion people don't have access to clean water. You know, we already talked about how many people that don't have access to basic electricity services. Um, there's a lot of people that are food insecure. So there's a lot of people on this planet that already don't have their basic needs met. And this can be an opportunity to get some of the, those 
um, resources to those communities. You know, I do a lot on the water side. Um, I see the water crisis as kind of an energy crisis because if you had really, really cheap, clean electricity, you could pump water, you could treat water, you could move water to where people need it. It's really an energy issue at the heart of it. Energy costs a lot of money. So installing this water infrastructure and operating that costs a lot of money because of that. So electrifying the communities that don't have access to basic electricity services is a really good way to give them a better quality of life. And then if we move up the income ladder to you know, lower middle income countries that might have access to electricity, but maybe it's coming at the expense of a lot of pollution from coal-fired power plants um, or burning biomass for cooking or even burning coal in the winter for heating, those communities are devastated by the health consequences of pollution, you know, air pollution. Of any of the things that kill us, air pollution is number one for the things that we can't really control. You know, we can control whether we smoke or not. We can control some elements of our, our lifestyle and some of the negative outcomes that come um, from that. But for most people around the world, you can't really change where you live. So you're kind of, um, you are kind of subject to the amount of pollution that your local community has. And pollution is quite devastating for um, our public health. And so this transition also gives communities the opportunity to get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner over time. Right now we're getting electricity, but we're getting electricity with a lot of other stuff like socks and knocks and smog and particulates, et cetera. Um, so we're also gonna clean up over time. We're not only gonna fix carbon, we're also gonna fix air pollution, which is a really big opportunity. And then I think the other, you know, the third opportunity that I don't think we think enough about is how do we bring economic development to the places that need it by leapfrogging these technologies? So we've lived in a world where traditionally to get rich, first you have to pollute a lot. So if you look at the business models of, um, you know, countries that have gotten richer over time, China, you know, really, really dirty polluting industries make it richer and then it cleans up, things get a little bit more expensive. Um, and, you know, that comes with economic development. You can, you know, that business model is what we've used over time. We did it in Europe, we did it in the United States. You do polluting industries, then you outsource them somewhere else and you put in environmental regulation. Places like Africa could skip all that. We could give them clean technologies that facilitate clean industries with these much cheaper technologies and they can skip the whole part where they pollute themselves and you know they devastate their public health with these pollution consequences. So I think there's huge good news ahead. And I think society actually gets a lot better. We just have to figure out how to get there, um, you know, economically, environmentally, and socially sustainably. Yeah, that's really great to hear. Is there any advice that you would give to rising young professionals, students in the field, um, whether engineering or any other field on how they can make an impact in the space? Yeah, so one of the reasons that I'm so drawn to energy is it's not limited to engineering, it's not limited to law, it's not limited to business, it's not limited to the sciences. Literally everyone can be a part of that. Um, and by the way, it's also not limited to people with college degrees. You know, I think there's a great need in this country to invest in the people that can actually do stuff with their hands, you know, welders, people that can install solar panels and transition transmission lines. Um, so there's huge job opportunities here. Um, the business models, so traditional utility business models of paying for kilowatt hours of electricity for many, many reasons that I won't go into, that business model is breaking. You know, just thinking about our electricity system from a supply side, just, you know, you turn on your lights, you turn on um, your TV and electricity comes out without thinking about the system. 
those days are over. We need technologies that can help us make decisions about the way that we use energy. We need technologies that um, moderate when we charge our electric cars so that we match it with the timing of solar. Um, this transition is gonna facilitate so many new industries and so many new job opportunities that I really just urge, you know, the upcoming generation that's thinking about jobs and what comes next, just learn as much as you can about this space because, you know, it's really like, I mean, it's almost like the next industrial revolution. Like things are going to change so fast. And whether you're interested in the technology or the policy um, or the regulatory requirements of this transition, there's gigantic opportunities abound. So I think it's actually, you know, I think there's a lot of doom and gloom right now about the prospects of jobs with artificial intelligence and the robots taking all of our jobs and the algorithms taking all of our jobs. This is a space where there's just so much potential um, for people to do really well in. So I think that's one of the really, really um, bright lights of, of the climate transition. Well, thank you so much for your time and insight today. We really appreciate it. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Up next, we'll hear from your three students, Seth, McKenna, and Andrew. Well, on this next segment of uh, our episode uh, of Energy Transition Talks, I want to welcome to the to the podcast um, three graduate students um, working uh, with uh, Dr. Uh, Kelly Sanders, who we had as our our kind of expert interviewer. And uh, uh, we want to welcome all three of you. And and rather than me try to uh, to to butcher your introductions, I'm going to ask each of you to to kind of introduce yourself and to uh, talk a little bit about, um, you know, why um, you were, um, what what's caused you, inspired you to pursue your doctoral degree in this area of energy. And then the kind of the last thing, and so this is the kind of the standard question we were asking everybody, is what does the word energy transition mean to you? So take it away, you guys. Cool, I can go ahead. Um, so I'm Step, uh, he, him, and I, as you mentioned, I'm one of Dr. Sanders' students and I've been researching energy. And I got really excited about energy because I think it's so fundamental to our human existence. You know, it influences our health, our environment, our social systems, um, but it also does that in like a myriad of ways. So it's a very complicated problem that makes it very fascinating. fascinating. So I think that there's like this large potential positive impact working in energy, but it's also just like a really interesting problem. And in terms of the energy transition, I think that for me, the energy transition is about changing both our energy sources and also our energy consumption patterns in a way that is sustainable and protects our environment and increases equity. I'm McKenna. I also work with uh, Kelly Sanders. Um, I became interested in doing an energy doctoral degree um, in my undergraduate when I was doing the peace engineering minor and that kind of combined some of our technical engineering classes also with some social analyses and was really focused on how we can develop some sustainable community centered solutions, especially for people that are experiencing injustices. Um, and in those courses, we talked about, about a lot of different global issues um, and issues facing our society um, that we could use engineering solutions to um, kind of mitigate those problems. Um, and I just really felt like climate change was the most pressing issue and something that I was excited to work on and, and try to develop solutions for. Um, and so energy was kind of, um, the next step that made sense for me. Um, and I think of ener the energy transition broadly as being a switch from high carbon energy systems to low carbon energy systems. And this is both so that we can mitigate global warming, but also so that we can adapt to some of the effects that of climate change that people are already experiencing. Um, and this means a lot of different things, like most obviously everybody knows renewable energy. I think there's a lot of different technologies and strategies that will all be included 
um, in the efforts and in the solution to um, combat global warming. Awesome. And I, I guess that just leaves me, uh, the third of these three musketeers. Hi, everyone. My name's Andrew, um, Andrew Jin. I'm a doctoral candidate, also under Kelly Sanders. All three of us joined at the same time. Um, and I was really interested from a young age in going into like climate change policy and uh, climate change mitigation. So growing up, I participated in this competition from the DOE, the Department of Energy called Science Bowl. Um, so this is probably the nerdiest of the three answers that you're gonna get, um, where I was speaking to all of these DOE scientists and, and policymakers, and they really like inspired me to want to become an expert in energy systems. And that's why I joined this lab group and, and uh, why uh, in, informs a lot of the research that I do now. Uh, for me, the energy transition is much more about some of these large scale changes that are happening and it's really targeted towards a lot of the opportunities we have to shift how we use energy throughout our lives to not only support climate change mitigation, but also to support community building and, and to support uh, just transitions uh, such that we can make sure that everybody has um, a lot of the opportunities to use energy um, in an equitable fashion and so that we can convert a lot of our lives to something that is more sustainable um, and more fits the needs of the of communities as as they start to change throughout um, a lot of these changing conditions of the climate the topic of our episode is just transition so all of you really hit upon that theme i think uh, you know one of our the purposes of the podcast in terms of public outreach and education is uh is to try to talk all of the elements of it. And you guys have touched on uh, a bunch of them. I mean, a lot. most people just think, well, it's a move from fossil fuels to wind and solar. And then that's probably all they think about it. But all of you have kind of uh, gone deeper and, and uh, talking about the, the demand issues, about the sustainable uh, you know, quality of life issues and all of the other kind of aspects of energy. So that's fantastic. So my next question is really just gonna is for McKenna and Andrew because of your particular research topics that uh, you I know you're dealing a lot with the vulnerability to extreme heat and access to critical services like air conditioning and public cooling centers and things like that. So could both of you talk a little bit about your your research regarding heat vulnerability? Yeah, so in my research, uh, I look specifically at AC penetration rates, which is the percentage of households in a given region that have air conditioning. And I'm specifically looking at the Southern California region, which a lot of the research in our lab is narrowed in on that area. Um, and it's an interesting test bed because one, there's a lot of diversity of housing stocks, socioeconomics and microclimates. And then also it actually has significantly lower rates of AC ownership than most of the US. So um, we'll likely see a lot of growth in this region in the upcoming years. And historically, this wasn't that as much of an issue because there are large areas throughout Southern California that actually have more mild temperatures um, and people aren't frequently experiencing some of those extreme temperatures. Um, but in our lab, labs work we've looked at ac ownership and vulnerability and found that there are a lot of communities that are in the lowest income brackets with the lowest rates of ac penetration that are projected to experience a significant number of extreme heat days in the future due to climate change so it's really important that we can identify these communities so that we have some insight into where those future energy needs are as more homes adopt air conditioning um, and then the homes that already have air conditioning are using the air conditioner more often. And also so that we can craft policies that can help mitigate some of the consequences of climate change for these populations that are going to be really vulnerable to extreme heat. Yeah, and just adding on to that, a lot of the really cool work that's happening in, in this uh, energy transition, and Jim, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the fact that ener this energy transition is not just to renewables, it's about all of these changes throughout the electricity system. Um, we're using smart meter data, which is giving us really cool insights into how residents themselves are using electricity, which isn't something that we've been able to do throughout, the, throughout many, many decades of work because we haven't been able to you know, take a peek into how electricity is used on the ground. Um, so McKenna and my work largely focuses on trying to gain insights into how 
a population in general is shifting their electricity usage uh, to some of these climate pressures. Um, McKenna's been identifying some of these big changes in air conditioning. Well, I've been working more to understand how some of these changes might occur throughout the day. And, and what we can see is that people aren't using electricity equally throughout the day, that there's there's pretty big differences in the types of households and uh, and how they use electricity throughout um, throughout the intraday period, uh, but also, you know, throughout the year. So in Southern California, especially, this is this is pretty obvious if you look at something comparing, you know, desert regions of Southern California to something towards the coast. Um, it's not just in the air conditioning usage, but when people are using electricity um, and, and how much electricity they're using. Uh, and not everybody uses uh, air conditioning as their main source of, of cooling response. Some people just can't afford um, air conditioning usage or they, or they might rely on other, other resources. So some of my work has also been looking at public cooling infrastructure. Uh, traditionally, cities will be providing something called like a cooling center in which they'll open up a library or a park to all of their um, citizens so that if they did need some type of air conditioning, they could come. Uh, but what we've seen is that throughout things like COVID-19, throughout financial uh, struggles, these have started to be deprioritized, um, but they are essential uh, for a lot of the cooling needs of some of the most vulnerable populations. So um, in Southern California, starting to understand these different behaviors of how people are using electricity is going to be really, really important to understand how we can make sure that people have this, uh, not just comfort, but but health-critical air conditioning on some of the most extreme uh, weather days. Well, it's cool that you guys are really focusing on the community level. And, you know, we, we've had a lot of kind of talk before that there's no one-size-fits-all, and, and you're an absolute uh, example of getting down into the, the details, and it might be even a particular family's demand. It might be a community. It might be where you plant trees. It might be you know, what, what color paint you put on roofs. I mean, there's a, a lot of really small uh, issues. So for both of you, um, given your research so far and what you've seen, and I guess I read an article that said the one piece of good news about Phoenix's heat dome problem was the fact the grid didn't fail, right? If the grid would have failed, even though it's been stressed, and it's been stressed in Texas, it's been stressed in California and other places, if it would have failed, it would have been a health catastrophe uh, with regard to the, the people vulnerability to heat. So how has your research impacted how you personally think about that term, just transition? So for me, as I focus on air conditioning access, um, that's obviously something that I'm thinking about what that would look like globally and not just in Southern California. And as you mentioned previously, the issues that are happening in Southern California, the solutions might look a lot different than what they look like on the other side of the globe. Um, so as I mentioned, Southern California is going to see a lot of adoption, at least compared to other parts of the US, but um, this is kind of really small growth compared to what we're gonna see in other parts of the globe, uh, especially some of the developing countries, which is often also where we're seeing some of the most deadly heat waves, um, already occurring and going to occur with more frequency and intensity in the future. And so a lot of those countries are where we'll see a really huge increase in AC ownership. Um, the EIA projects that by 2050, the global cooling capacity will triple. And so that's really great because AC is a key adaptation tool against the effects of heat stress, and it can save a lot of lives during these really extreme heat events. But um, I'm also really thinking about what does that mean in the context of the energy transition? So how can we meet this huge growth and demand um, that these countries are going to have? Um, because they also need AC just as badly as we do, but how can we ensure that we're meeting that um, with low carbon energy systems, uh, I think is going to be a challenge in the future. Yeah, and, and just to add on to that, I, I'm really glad you kind of brought up some of these like community versus system scale differences in the energy transition, because I think a lot of our research uh, 
is trying to understand how individuals might use electricity differently than the system in general. So understanding, you know, how many people have AC is incredibly important, but it's also understanding when are when is AC being used um, and and like you know, there's different patterns into how people are using electricity or how people are, are not using energy. Maybe they're they're going to cooling centers. Maybe they're going to malls and pools and other uh, different resources in their communities uh, that do cost energy, but aren't going to be captured in their own individual energy usage. Uh, so part what this is really meant for me in this understanding of the just transition is that the energy transition is not by its own nature going to be a just transition that we do need to have some key work in understanding how different people are going to be using energy differently and how these types of transitions are going to impact individuals um, and what like what those responses are uh, because we can design systems that are optimizing for emissions or or for lower cost energy, but that might influence a lot of the day-to-day -day lives of people who might be most vulnerable to some of the impacts of climate change. Somebody who has the, who requires um, energy uh, for something like a medical device, um, th that's not going to change whether it's sunny out and there's a lot of solar electricity or not. And understanding, you know, how are these differences occurring? Who needs energy at these specific times? And how that we can fit the needs of the community members um, and, 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 you know, individual households that are being affected by these energy changes is really important and a lot of where our research is centered. And what you're saying is getting real personal for me, because my 96 year old mother lives in a house that was built in 1955, and there's was no uh, air conditioning anywhere around it. So we have to watch and 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 check on her, and then maybe some days take her out to lunch in a air conditioned restaurant or something, or even bring her to our home, which is much newer. Uh, and those are kind of getting down to what it means to me and what it means to individual choices and um, you know one house's household may be different than the next household and maybe in one place it's energy efficiency and cut down waste and maybe another it it's they have to have that power all the time to as you said keep a medical device going or something like that so th those are really kind of important themes well step we didn't want to leave you out of all of this uh, your work is uh, looked at a lot on how we transition the power grid to higher and higher penetrations of renewable energy. And we've talked a little bit in some of our expert interviews about the famous California duck curve, where you have curtailment of energy in the afternoon. And then two hours later, when you get home and you want to replug in your Tesla, you can't do it because there's, a, there's an energy deficit. Can, can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that you think we can make progress towards both this dual challenge of decarbonization while protecting vulnerable populations and the, the whole idea of energy prices as well as the some of the climate extremes. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that I don't think when we talk about rising prices, you know, I don't think the story of this energy transition is rising energy prices. I think renewable resources are very, they're very cheap, they're very abundant. I think we absolutely have the ability to build up these resources and without exposing people to higher prices and actually protecting people from higher prices. Um, I think that as we make the transition, there's some strategies that we can use. Um, so obviously a very popular one for dealing with what you mentioned, the duck curve is talking about storage, um, but also there's opportunity on the consumer side, the end user side, which is shifting consumption patterns. So that's something that I look at a lot in my research, which is because we have this issue where we have so much demand at night and in the evening and so little renewable supply, um, that's a time where we really wanna shift demand from one time period to another. And that is the time under our current system that people are most likely to be exposed to higher energy prices. So it's really important to think about what behaviors we can shift, whether that's cooling, whether that's uh, you know cooking, whether that's using your dryer uh, and your washing machine, um, then, and some of those small shifts can save people money and protect people from higher prices um, without necessarily forcing them to give up any resources. But 
I don't think that, you know, that we're, we need to be so concerned about the energy part of this transition driving up prices. I think it's more, we're looking at demand impacting prices. Um, and that's really, we're thinking about that more in terms of climate change and, you know, the urban heat island effect. And I think the last thing I would add to that is if we did start to see an issue where there was this disconnect between making this really necessary energy transition from a sustainability perspective uh, and an environmental protection perspective, we started to see a disconnect where that was causing higher energy prices for people who need to you know, get ACs and use them. It was jeopardizing their health. Then one thing that could be considered is moving more of the energy sector from the private sector to the public sector. And that's a very controversial idea because of the popularity of things like microgrids and uh, you know, a lot of distributed energy resources. There's kind of a trend towards smaller and smaller uh, you know, grids and smaller and smaller sector level dynamics. But I think it would be you know, something worth considering is just moving more in a public direction. Well, there's 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 also I say you know, I, you know lots of trends going in lots of different directions as as I'm sure you know and maybe you know in a rich neighborhood you can afford the the solar panels on your roof and you can um, then have maybe a local energy security kind of agreement mm -hmm. with yourself right but in another place if you've got a bunch of people living in apartments or whatever they don't have that choice and so Absolutely. you know the equity. Yeah. Uh, well, to, to finish this out, but can you give us a reason that you are hopeful about the energy transition that'll be able to improve the livelihoods of community more globally, particularly those who lack access to to adequate energy services? Let, let's end on a positive note. What makes you hopeful? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give uh, kind of one local answer and one more global answer. So on the local side, one thing I'm really excited about is some of the transitions that actually will happen, the, the part of the energy transition that will happen on the end user side, on the consumer side. So I'm thinking about just technologies like uh, heat pumps and electric vehicles and all of this electrification process that we're really excited about. I think that that is going to be a way that we can achieve both you know, more efficient systems and also a really high level performance where people are having their needs met. Um, so I'm really optimistic about more and more grids from you know day one or close to day one. With renewable energy, we can avoid all of the you know damage that would have been done like through air pollution if we had started those grids with fossil fuels. So I think that's something that we really need to invest in and support as much as possible right now. Yeah, I'll actually expand um, a little bit on what Step said because I'm also hopeful about the impact that renewable energy can have. Um, and in addition to what Step was saying, also from an environmental justice aspect, um, because we know that there's a communities that are disproportionately affected by climate change. Um, everyone's impacted, but not everyone's impacted equally. And so this is true on multiple scales. We know that throughout the US and in other countries globally, that a lot of times low income or communities of color are exposed to heavier pollution. Uh, just for example, because it's more likely that the facilities that are responsible for these emissions are being located in their neighborhoods. Uh, and if you're talking on a global scale, it's often that the countries that have contributed least to the climate crisis are the ones that are experiencing the greatest impacts. So um, I think that's one of the reasons that I'm optimistic about the impacts that renewable energy can have. Um, because, and the energy transition in general, because cleaner energy can relieve some of these unequal burdens that are placed on communities, and also the solutions and policies that we're developing to um, replace our current systems can create a more sustainable and equitable energy future for everyone. Yeah, so I, I think for me, the, the biggest thing is a lot of the fact that the energy transition has a huge opportunity into democratizing energy usage, especially not especially in a lot of what Step said and, and McKenna have mentioned is uh, renewable energies giving people access to smaller scale uh, 
smaller scale resources that they could potentially control, but also in democratizing our access to information. Uh, it has this opportunity to give people more information into their hands, uh, to be able to say, this is when I'm using my electricity usage, to go to policymakers to argue, hey, I can even see now, and I have the data to prove that you know, I need to use electricity at this, this time, or, or things like that, so that communities have the opportunity to to argue for their own energy needs um, that's a big there's a big caveat here which is that uh, we need to be open to understanding what communities need in their electricity usage we need to leave space for you know this democratization of energy uh, there's huge opportunities as this transition occurs for many voices to dominate and to to crowd out some of these communities um, and to prevent a just transition. Uh, but you see so many of these opportunities come up, whether it's, you know, neighborhoods grouping together to purchase solar or whether it's even just, you know, uh, different households switching to electric stoves or changing their electricity behaviors uh, to meet climate change needs. We have all this opportunity to take it into our own hands, um, and we need to be able to push the system uh, to to fit our energy needs of the future. Well, we want to thank all three of you. Um, it's been great to, to hear your uh, perspective and voices. Uh, one of the purposes of our podcast is to reach out to the community, and I think you guys have been, you know, all of your research is, is really focused in that kind of thing, whether you're looking at the data or the systems or you know, local use. Is there any last words that you would give um, looking at the microphone, talking to the, you know, some of the people that you're studying their their challenges that you would like to leave us with? Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, um, just getting involved in, in any of these conversations. And I, I know tools like this podcast that, that can bring some researchers uh, connect with to connect with uh, community members is incredibly important. But even you know, when we have conversations, whether it's uh, any of us researchers with our families, with friends, and getting to understand how people use electricity differently, understanding what some of these needs are, it always informs our own research, and it always helps to us to understand how how we can make our research useful uh, to other people. So never be afraid to kind of just discuss your energy usage, because as Steph mentioned at the beginning of the segment, like it's such an important part of all of our lives. We use energy every single day, even if we don't notice it, whether that's driving a car, whether that's turning on the lights in our homes, whether it's just eating food, energy is such an integral part and adding to the conversation, starting to realize that energy is a part of your daily life, that, that's such a huge component into taking, you know, this just transition and this just energy transition um, into our own hands and, and to, to empower ourselves to shift our energy usage to what our needs are in the future. So improving our energy IQ so we can make better choices. Yes, very much so. Um, well, I would just say thank you. Uh, all for having us. It was really fun to be on here. Um, I think that I agree with what what Andrew said and how you summarized it with in, improving your energy IQ. And I think it's also about um, the community of energy and your role in the community. And I think that because energy is, you know, a complex issue or it's it's was less of a local issue for a long time, it's not something that people interacted with, or it's not something where it's really easy to see the impact on your neighbor. Uh, but there is, you know, an impact that we have our behaviors impact each other. And we should be taking on this issue as a community, and from a perspective of caring about each other. Um, and I'm really optimistic about that. Well, thanks, McKenna, you get the last word. Um, I, I think mine kind of ties into both what Andrew and Sup have said, but um, maybe just not to feel so hopeless about it. I think I'll have friends that like reach out to me because they know that this is an area that I work in and they'll like ask what they can do or like if there's any small changes that they can make in their life. And it's easy to kind of feel as though like this is out of our hands and it's like really comes down to corporations and governments and all, all the changes they need to make, which is true without corporations cooperating without government making policies like that, that is what we need and we won't be able to decarbonize without them but um i think it's made me personally feel better to make like small changes in my life when i can and like andrew said talk to people about it and there's a million podcasts like this one where you can learn more about what you can do in your everyday life um 
And I think that those do, those small conversations really do make a difference um, in the energy transition going forward and how other people perceive it and how people vote um, and the changes that are made at bigger scales. So small conversations make a difference. Uh, we've had a theme that the energy transition is up to us. It's up to each one of us. And and uh, I want to thank all three of you for just really, uh, you know, building on that point. So good luck with your research. Thank you. Thank you. There is a lot to digest in this episode. I want to thank our guests for sharing their insights and experiences with us and for an informative and inspiring conversation. I hope all of you enjoyed it as much as we did. Despite such a difficult topic, we ended up on an optimistic note. If you want to learn more about energy, water, and climate systems, check out some of the resources in the show notes. Uh, so for now, we leave our audience until next time. We hope you understand a little more about the story of the energy transition as we are all learning and exploring this together because uh, at the end, energy transition is up to you. Um, so thank you all so much for tuning in to the Energy Transition Talk. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the topics you want to hear about in the future podcast, please visit our YouTube page and any other places where you're getting your podcast. We welcome all your feedback. We would like to thank the USC Urshagi Center for Energy Transition, which aims to develop innovations in energy technologies and foster the transition to a low carbon future for sponsoring this podcast. Special thanks also to our guests for today and Abby, our technical guru, for their important contributions to our podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so that you can automatically get access to our new episodes. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Justine. I'm Jim. And I'm Paulina. Signing off from the Energy Transition Talk. Stay tuned for the next episode.